and definitely I encourage you to take notes. If, um, if I'm obedient, there will be time for Q&A, um, but there are two strikes against me. I'm black and I'm Baptist, so those <laughs> things don't go well with being brief. So, and as you see, I like to have a little fun in Jesus' name and joke, so hopefully you can lighten up with me, um, especially because I'll be sharing my story. And just as a disclaimer, there'll be some things that are hard to hear. Um, but as Soma, we believe that we are story-formed people, which is something that's going to come up in this talk, where God has a great overarching grand story and a grand narrative. And then we have little roles and little parts in that story. So we're going to talk about the intersection of our stories with God's story. So that being said, um, if you want to text, turn to the book of Luke chapter 7. We're going to use that as a parallel text to talk about Jonah. Let's get my notes open. Okay. So, welcome to A Holy Hospitality, loving our neighbors as God loves. And basically, having this opportunity to speak, I basically learn something, a different aspect of, of neighbor love that I never saw before. I'm a hospitalitarian by profession. I work in the hotel industry. So, um, but I really was able to see from this study that holy hospitality is neighbor love. That's pretty much what it is. Hospitality in the biblical sense is neighbor love, right? It's the greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, right? And the second command is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's pretty much what holy hospitality is. So that's what we're going to be talking about today is how to love. We're going to be talking about loving our neighbors as God loves, particularly as it pertains to those who may identify as LGBTQIA+. Why? Because my heart is burdened that the church historically and presently has moments of imbalance in our application of grace, truth, and love. That's from my own story to members of this community. But I genuinely also believe that the gospel helps us come in from the extremities to join Jesus at the center, right? And love others and even ourselves as Christ has loved us. And that's our goal for today. The big idea is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ empowers us to bring a radically new and bold hospitality to those inside and outside our homes. We, like Jesus, get to extend the grace we've received to fellow disgraced individuals. So that's the opportunity that's set before us and before, between us and our neighbors, is that God has commissioned us and empowered us to bring a holy hospitality, radically new, radically bold, to those inside our communities and outside. Acts 1 and 8 is one of my favorite verses, and it says this, you shall be my witnesses, right? Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you shall do witnessing. It says you shall be my witnesses, which means God is going to take our lives and transform them into the message that he wants the world to know about him. So that's what we're talking about today. Now, you've been in the story of Jonah and that old righteously indignant prophet. But I believe there's a New Testament account that runs parallel to it. One that helps us understand Jonah's dynamics fairly well 
and also what we, the prophet Jonah, a sinful woman and a Pharisee may all have in common. Here's four things, a need for grace, a reception of grace, a recognition of grace, and a responsibility to exhibit that same grace. Turn to Luke chapter seven. I'm gonna read it, lift a few observations from it, and then we're gonna talk about it. So Luke chapter seven, 36, beginning the 36th verse. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I lost my place now. Okay. Who, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, I love this passage. It's one of my favorite stories, primarily because me and this lady, we got some things in common. And maybe some of you do, too. But one of the things I love, this story of a sinful woman forgiven. A woman has heard a message that Jesus is at a party in town at a Pharisee's house. And she makes the track to go to this house. Now, the first thing we know about this woman is that she's a sinner. Very interesting. A sinner goes to a Pharisee's house. Those two things don't go together. But that's what happens. She goes to this Pharisee's house, and it says when she enters the place, a few things, she touches Jesus. She comes in proximity with him. Not just proximity, but contact. The woman is a neighbor. She lives in the town, and she's known by the townspeople as a sinner, which means there's probably some things we can infer about what her sinful practice may be. She might be a lady of the evening. Because whatever she does, the whole town knows about it. She's a working girl, and whatever she's doing, she's making money. Because it says she brings a flask of, uh, in an alabaster jar box of ointment. The value of what she has in this jar is about a year's salary. And she brings it to this party to pour it out on Jesus. What's happening in this party atmosphere? First, a clash of cultures. 
is happening in this scene. The religious versus the righteous. A Pharisee has invited Jesus to their house. A sinful woman shows up. And now we've got a big play of different characters at this dinner. And here's the first thing for us to think about. It shows us something. That an encounter, oftentimes, our encounters with culture first reveal to us our own cultures. Our encounters with other cultures often reveal to us our own cultures. What do I mean when I say cultures? I mean the waters that we swim in sometimes. Prime example, I told you I work in a hotel. We have a TV that's on in the lobby about that big, playing CNN News 24-7. We can't change the channel. It just has to be CNN, right? Okay. Have a couple come in one day. Can you turn it to Fox News? And another couple over there overhears, and a war happens right in front of me at my front desk. <laughs> it was a clash of two cultures. And that's similar to what's happening in this party. Religious, stuck, no suck up in the air, righteous old Pharisee, and a sinful woman. But thank God, Jesus is also at this party. And so oftentimes, the, when we have an opportunity to engage other cultures, we find out something about the cultures that we live in, in our own hearts as well. Because when those two people just started bickering about the news, they were evidencing and exhibiting the cultures that were living in their own hearts. And that what was clashing. Jesus rebukes the Pharisee because a sinful woman brings more hospitality to Jesus from the outside of the house than the actual host of the party in his own home. Jesus is really dignifying this lady. She brings in more hospitality than the host. That's why he says, hey, you didn't give me any oil for my head, any water for my feet, no lotion. You did nothing for me. But this woman came in behind me and has not ceased to wash my feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. Pharisees facing Jesus face to face, zero hospitality. Woman comes behind her, who's a sinful woman with worship. Right? We see here how this woman brings a radical form of hospitality to Jesus. And Jesus shows us something in this story that we should not forget how we get to extend the grace we've received to fellow disgraced individuals. Why? Why am we comparing the story to Jonah? The Pharisee like Jonah cannot recognize the grace extended to him and therefore has a religion that gives him a permission and a people not to love. See, the Pharisee has his eyes on the woman. The woman who's a sinner has her eyes on Jesus. And we see this picture that for the Pharisee, what has happened in his heart is his religiosity has given him a permission and a people group not to love, just like Brother Jonah. The Pharisee sees it as his job to protect Jesus from a sexual sinner, but Jesus's hospitality completely obliterates this in his democratizing grace. What does he say in the story? This is crazy. The man, Simon, the Pharisee, is thinking, and then Jesus responds to what he was thinking. <laughs> He's thinking, this, if you knew what kind of woman this was, you wouldn't let her touch you. And Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> Whoa, don't think around Jesus. 
It's dangerous. Right? Jesus speaks right to his heart and says, a certain money lender owed this much. And another uh, had two people who had a debt. And here's when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. So that meant the guy who owed $500,000 had no room to look down his nose at the person who owed 50 <laughs> or vice versa. That's the beauty in this story. Which one will love him more? It doesn't matter. The story isn't about their debt. It's about the good moneylender who forgave the great debt. But it teaches us something. Who will love him more? And Simon says, obviously the one who received the greater cancellation. Jesus says, you have judged rightly. We come to our next principle. Grace extended is always in proportion to the grace that has been received. Grace extended is always in proportion to the grace that has been received. We receive grace, and then God hasn't saved us to sit, soak, and sour, but instead of being cesspools, we become channels, and that grace flows out of us back towards other, others. Make sense? So, Let's do something for a second. I want you to take two minutes, pause and ponder on the grace that has been extended to you. We just read a story of a sinful woman forgiven who's had grace extended to her. And what's happening is the woman has a need for grace. She has a reception of grace, a recognition of grace. Let's take two minutes for you to ponder what was your specific need for grace from God? Did you receive this grace from God? How did God show you this grace? How are you exhibiting this grace to others? By show of hands, how many of you remember your need for grace from God? By show of hands, did Jesus show you grace that you needed from him? I won't ask the last question. <laughs> Are we exhibiting this grace on this right? No, that's personal. I wanted it to be an opportunity for personal reflection because I think that us being in touch with our salvation stories and the grace that we receive, sometimes as Christians, we God begins to bless us and we get such a nice, good, clean life of blessing for a while that we forget what the Lord has done for us and brought us from. And we can be really tempted to be like the, the old Pharisee that we see in this party. And I want that to set the stage as we move forward, that this time of personal reflection will set a stage for us. So that was the woman's story. Now I'd like to share with you mine. No one, and for the sake of time, I'm going to read it. So because if I go down rabbit trails, we'll never get done. And I'm older than I look, God bless me. No. Anyway, all right, be serious, stop playing guys. No one comes to faith because God answers all of their questions. 
We come to faith because God answers the one main inescapable question which plays our very existence as broken human beings. The question of just who is this Jesus? Who is he in relation to the things that I've suffered, the things that I've experienced, and the things that I'm hiding? Is he God? Is he worthy of my obedience, devotion, worship, and sacrifice? God reveals himself to us and we must respond. There is no negotiation. True biblical and historical Christianity has always been the proper response to God's own revelation of himself as Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord. Where do we stand in relation to this Jesus? This revelation is not without effect because it then begets another question. Who are we? The revelation of Jesus exposes us for who and what we really are. And the sad truth is we are not ready. We are people who would rather pretend. I was so uncomfortable in my own skin that I pretended for a long time. And when Jesus entered into his creation time, the gospel of John records that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. As a fallen human being, tainted and tarnished by the depraving effects of original sin, I was born broken in the dark. I was molested in the dark. I responded by learning to have sex in the dark. My definition of love was formed in the dark. I formed an identity in the dark. I lived in secrecy in the dark. Because of my distance from Christ, I came to a dangerous conclusion in my early adolescence, that my darkness was light. Having been born broken and then repeatedly sinned against through the brokenness of others could only lead to one tragic end. Negative responses to the sins perpetrated against me. Therefore, in me, there was a natural aversion to the light of the gospel. This light threatened to expose my sin and the deep sense of shame I carried as a victim of sexual abuse. The fear of being found out for having kept it a secret for so long. The wrong sense of guilt that I carried for blaming myself for making this man do to me what he had done. And also the twisted belief in me that somehow and in some way this man had shown me love because I had never known pure and right physical affection from a male as a child. And even after becoming a Christian, it was many years later before I allowed Christ to shine his light on these hidden places in my heart. And the sad part is this, that nothing gets healed in the dark. So long as I operated in this darkness, I was working against myself, but I had too much to lose. In the darkness of my experiences, I had formed an autonomous sexual identity of my own making. I was very young when I decided that I wanted to be a strong black woman. The world into which I was born, there was no such thing as a good man. No, not one. There was no man in our community who had married his woman or given her or their children his last name. No man around us who was a productive contributor to society. The mothers were raising us kids. The mothers were putting us through school. The mothers were providing for our means, be it through minor illegal activity or governmental assistance. The women tucked us kids in at night, wishing more than praying that we would not grow up to be like the men they loved. This sisterhood that had to brave the men as a necessary evil was keeping our neighborhood together. All the men were deadbeats, drunks, drug addicts, incarcerated womanizers, baby daddies, or physical abusers. My own father fit five of those categories and was evicted from our lives after blacking both of my mother's eyes one night in a fight. And if that was the de cultural definition of manhood and masculinity in my world, then I decided that a man was the last thing I wanted to be. 
I suddenly rejected God's gift of gender and marked return to sender on the package. I enrolled into the sisterhood with my eyes wide open. The sheroes of my community became the highest form of good to me, and I vowed that I would be one of them or better. Through beauty and sex, I would work my power over men to make them do my bidding. But in the middle of all that, there came this grace, this unmerited favor of joy that I just couldn't shake or seem to get around. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, For he has made everything beautiful in its time and has set eternity into the hearts of men that no man can figure out the work which God has done from beginning to end. God's promises anchored me and answered me. God was leading me to the conclusion that my futility might not be forever. I was surprised by joy in the midst of the most unremarkable circumstances because in all of my pain, I was not alone. The cross became proof that Jesus was not only willing to suffer for me, but to also suffer with me. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call them his brethren. Hebrews 2.11. I came to Christ because he drew me, because he revealed himself to me, and he is irresistible. I came to Christ because in him I was awakened to the whole new world I had been asleep to my whole life, but had been dreaming of the entire time. I came to Christ because in the revealing of himself to me, I discovered that I was truly more sinful than I had ever thought, but also more loved than I could ever imagine. My, uh, despite, my broken, despite my brokenness, Jesus loved me, flaws and all. My utter disappointment in myself as a sinner and in people as perpetrators against me was overwhelmed by his amazing love for us both. Jesus loved me, a sinner, and he also loved those who had sinned against me. I, who was looking for love in all the wrong places, was being pursued by a relentless lover. Jesus did not have to prove to me that homosexuality was a sin. He just had to prove to me that he was God. And if he was God, then he alone reserved the right to determine and declare my true identity. It was not to be left up to me. Jesus did what no one else could do or had even tried to do. He did the only thing that could be done. He brought grace to my disgrace. My faith yet endures all these years later because Jesus hasn't given up on me. Is a verse you should commit to memory, Philippians 1 and 6. And I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you shall perform and complete that good work right up until the time of Jesus Christ's return. Jesus answered my question, the one that really mattered. In my suffering, I asked God, why? Why was I born this way? Why did I, this have to be my problem? Why can't I stop? Why can't I change? Why does this keep happening to me? But as he did for Job in the Old Testament, he answered me not with why, but with who. God showed me himself as sovereign and in almost unbelievably gracious care over me throughout my struggle with sexual identity. I learned of my God just like Job. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 2, 42, 5 through 6. Job was a righteous man in the Bible who had an amazing reputation before God, angels, demons, and his fellow man. He was also blessed beyond measure. But Job was also afflicted in catastrophic ways. He experienced more grief and pain than the likes of which some of the worst criminals deserve. Yet in all this, Job did not charge God with sin or wrong. Job 122. 
No one had more reason than Brother Job to shake their fist in God's face and recant their confession of faith, especially since Job's suffering was from God's own hand because God had recommended him for trouble in the cosmic battle for his glory. Even Job's own wife told him to just curse God and die, but he didn't. He maintained his faith. He maintained his integrity because he trusted in God's wisdom more than his own. By faith, Job had a sense that somehow God had not abandoned him, even though he felt like it, even though it looked like it, even though it looked to all the watching world that his friends and wife said it and agreed that he was forsaken by God, brother Job's faith seemed to peek into the invisible beyond his struggle. In the midst of his suffering, Job declared, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my flesh is thus and destroyed, I will see God whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold him and not another. My heart faints within me. This testimony energized my faith and endurance. Despite his present circumstance, Job had faith that he would one day see the one for whom it would have been worth it all to have suffered. Job had a certainty of two things. One, that he would see God. And two, a resurrection. The certainty of seeing God enabled him to endure pain unimaginable with a hope indestructible. Job's hope for resurrection didn't bring a masochistic pride into his suffering. Instead, it brought a prevailing sense of purpose, and purpose always refines suffering. The hope of resurrection does something supernatural for the person of faith. It tethers him between two worlds, the already and the not yet. And it does this by the present work of Jesus's redemption. In other words, the presence of blossoms on a tree now is indicative of coming harvest of fruit in a future season. Job's experience of God's faithfulness and goodness in the past tethered his faith to certainty of his resurrection to come in the future, which carried him through to enduring his trials faithfully in the present. The death of Christ is not the last picture we are left with him of in the story of God. No, we are privileged to behold him risen so that no matter what happens or what sins or what situations we have to die to in this life, there is a resurrection power and life awaiting us on the other side. There I will have the vindication and there we will have the full inheritance of what we enjoy only in part now. Christ's resurrection and our union with him gives us the power to live our lives not by our explanations, but by God's promises. For the just shall live by faith. It was perspective influenced by faith that empowered Brother Job to endure the suffering as long as he did. It is perspective influenced by faith that empowers me to make the choice that I have made. If I did not live with all certainty that I, and assurance that I will see God with my own eyes in my own flesh, that I too shall yet appear before him dressed in robes of righteousness of Christ alone, with no good of my own to contribute to my reputation, then there would be no way for me to live this life of denying ungodly passions that I can often feel almost every day. Like Job, my heart faints within me at the thought. My perspective has been changed because my life has been changed and is still being changed. I will see God. And every true-born child of God knows this with a certainty that is sometimes inexpressible. I can't be gay because I have seen Jesus, and seeing him has changed everything. It has changed me. Colossians 3.3 says this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him also in glory. 
The truest thing about us is not who we are attracted to sexually. The truest thing about us is Jesus Christ, the crucified but risen and all-powerful Savior, Son of God, who has pledged and wed himself to us. And if you are in Christ, then this is true of you too. The truest thing about your neighbor is not their form of sexual identification. The truest thing about your neighbor is that they bear the image of a holy God who reserves the right to see his beautiful reflection in their faces. And we bring this radical holy hospitality to them so that they might see Jesus's beauty and cross over the bridge of brokenness into their true identity. Now that was a lot. That's <laughs> heavy. Right. And that's my story. And that's the story that God has chosen to write over my life. All right. And that's a lot of what it means to have a life in Christ. It means to instead of trying to wrestle the pen from God. Take it out of his hands. We allow God to write the stories that he has for us. And the gospel gives us the freedom to trust in God's goodness that he's a better writer than I could ever be, or than you could ever be. So let's take two seconds, a minute, and then we'll share out loud. I want you, you heard a little bit about my community, my bring up, I want us to think about something because there's a question after this, but I want to start thinking, what might my world have looked like if my community lived Jesus's sexual ethic? What would my world or community have looked like if my community lived Jesus's sexual ethic? Take a quick second and then I'll take some answers. I want to know what you heard and what you thought. What would a world look like with Jesus's ethic? Or let me start it back with this question. Did my community sound like a community that was living Jesus's sexual ethic? <laughs> no. Brokenness abounded. And the purpose of me pointing that out is because I think one of the things that has happened now is we're at a point in history and in the world where there's a debate as to whether God's sexual ethic is really good for us. All right. And so sadly, sometimes we live deluded about what a world would look like without it. <laughs> So in, in retrospect, I mean, one of the things that I only God can make this possible, but it's almost like you go into Zales, right? And you want to look at a diamond, right? Do they just lay that diamond on glass for you to look at? No. They put a velvet cloth down and the cloth is usually black. And they lay that white diamond against it. And what that does is it helps to illumine every facet, every beautiful facet of that diamond. That black drop, that black backdrop against that diamond helps you to see all the beautiful facets when the light hits it. So you know what you're getting. And so in some way, when we see the brokenness in society, that black backdrop helps the gospel shine as a brighter diamond and jewel for the world to see. Make sense? 
So, as I said, we're at a moment in time where that is debatable these days. Is God's sexual ethic really good for us, especially in this area? So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Move to part two. How did we get here this way? So this is where we start talking about four. Actually, I think I'm done. What time do I have until again? 30? Okay, 30. Oh, yeah, got to do fast track. Okay, yes. <laughs> Speaking of which, you were going to get a break. Now you're not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. How do we get here? So one of the ways, as I mentioned, at some we believe that we're story formed people. Why? Because stories shape humanity. I just shared you with my, my story. How many other stories were in that story? I'm talking about a whole community. There's other kids just like me who had the very same story, right? Stories shape humanity. Stories have shaped our lives for good or for ill. We are touched and shaped and affected by stories in this life, and there's no escaping it. I've got a story. You've got a story. You got your mama's story, your grandmama's story. What is it, uh, Pete Scazzaro, who says, you may have Jesus in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones, right? <laughs> Facts may be the language of the head, but stories are the language of the heart. The Bible itself containing God's grand cosmic plan of redemption is two-thirds narrative story. Why? Because God, too, has a story that he's writing us into and inviting us to participate in. And it is grand. And it explains how we got into this predicament culturally. So we as some would believe there's four major. I'm sure you've been through this already. So this will be a light refresher. I know you've got a good leader. So, you know, this is... Just bear with me, okay? Just humor me, right? So, main four arches of the story, but there's a reason why, and you'll see why. We're going to run through it quickly. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the big story, right? What is that all about? Creation, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. This is the grand narrative story over all of creation. God made everything good. God made me with the sexuality that was good, Right? The world was good. God saw it himself and pronounced the blessing. What happens into the fall? And here's what we have to understand. I love this verse. For as in Adam all die, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Sin touched every aspect of creation. It's almost when the sin happened in the garden, every aspect of life, there was nowhere that escaped the flood of the contagion and the contamination. Sin touched everything and began to break it down, including my sexuality. So sometimes you're going to meet people who are going to say, I was born this way. And that's possible through the brokenness in creation. But the good news is redemption. <laughs> God didn't leave us there. He says, you were born that way. Oh, Nicodemus comes to him by night. <laughs> and what does he say to brother Nicodemus? You must be born again. Redemption. And also, also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Redemption. 
Adam's sin took the breath of life away from us. Jesus' death and resurrection gives the breath of life back to us. Next, for restoration, one of these old days, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he said, behold, I am making all things new. You know, I'm an old school Christian, which means I'm excited about heaven. You know, this is old school. You know, we was talking about dying when we all Y'all don't like that stuff now, dude. Y'all new school, I know, but I'm excited because you know why? There's some things that are not going to survive the passage. And one of those things that's not going to survive the passage is my struggle with sin. Now I have to fight, but when we get to restoration, kiss a goodbye. That's the hope and the glory of the good news is that the troubles that shackle us here will not survive the passage into restoration. God is going to restore everything that was lost and broken. What does it say, I believe, in C.S. Lewis? And no, oh, I'm getting in trouble. Will every, yeah, no, it's not C.S. Lewis, it's uh, Tolkien. Is everything sad about to become untrue? That's what Jesus do. And C.S. Lewis said, have one moment in heaven in eternity will work backwards. Everything that we've ever suffered, just one moment, will do that for us. So why is that important? Because when you're engaging people, you're engaging a story. Now, I just told you my story, and as you see, so you see the big arc, you know this too, you've been through this, there's the big story arc, God's grand story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? And then there's my story, my little arc. But my story is under the big arc. And that's what the gospel gives us the power to do. And for many of our friends in the LGBTQ plus IA community, those arcs are inverted. And if you're honest, we have areas even in our own lives where that arc is inverted. Jesus is my co-pilot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I ain't getting in because <laughs> I want him to be driving. <laughs> right? We have areas in our lives and in our hearts where it's all about me. Right? God, this is my story. Bless my plan. Make this thing work for me. And God's greater story helps us to see where we can fit in and join him in what he's doing. And some of us may have learned by now that God's story is usually better than ours. May have learned that by now. All righty. So that being said, I use certain terms. I'm going to help define them for us. I talked about what I described as sexual brokenness. Right. That's when the fall happened, sexual brokenness infected the creation. And that's why we see so much brokenness in society today. What is sexual brokenness? Sexual brokenness is the reality that the fall rendered us all, whether homosexual or heterosexuals, as sexual sinners. We all experience some form of brokenness 
One of the forms of brokenness, the biggest struggle in, seems to be in society today, monogamy. <laughs> One is just not enough for anybody anymore, I guess. I don't, all my celebrity marriages that don't make it, I love that stuff. It breaks my heart. I'm in on to, oh, no, they didn't. Who was my, the, Brad and, you know, and, and, you know, those two. Well, first Brad and Jennifer. I was like, really? Come on. Can, will nobody make it? <laughs> Hollywood romances. <laughs> and it's about to be my favorite season. Hallmark movies getting ready to start. Don't judge me. Anyway, <laughs> moving right along. Right? But the fall impacted every area of life, especially sexuality. And so what we see is sexual brokenness running rampant in creation. Sex in the dark or any sex in the dark is this. Any sexual behavior which God has defined as sexual immorality or is outside his good design and grand intention. We have to remember that sex is God's idea, not the devil's. But God created it to be very good. He had a good design for it and a grand intention. And therefore, sex in the dark or sexual brokenness is anything that is outside of God's grand intention and good design. In the fall, what we see happening here when it pertains to LGBTQIA+, and let me be very clear. So the reason why I'm not going through all of those terms is because I feel like a lot of talks focus more on that aspect of it. We could go through, if you want to do that, we can do it later. Go through the L, the Q, the B, the G, the T, the I, A, and the plus, right? But the plus will be here till tomorrow. But the point is, and I don't mean as a joke, just saying that that's, it's, it's ever growing. It's ever increasing because people are finding new ways to identify, right? So that's happening. But the point is what we see has happened is sexual immorality has become an identity hijacking sin. One of the reasons why it's so hard to talk about this now is because a lot of times we're using the same words but speaking a different language. Because we're talking about something that's, we're saying, I don't like this thing that you're doing. And this person is saying, this is who I am. So it's not that you don't like what I'm doing. You don't like me. You reject who I am. All right? We could throw to statistics, but I don't think I have to prove that to you. All you have to do is turn your news on and, and you will see the horror that sexual brokenness is wreaking on culture. By the way, this presentation will be available to you afterwards, so you can re refer to it if you desire. But ultimately, this is what's happened. The sexual revolution put an illegitimate authority into the hands of each person to invent their own theology with respect to the body, gender, and sex. And here's why that's hard for Christians, is because your body if you're in Christ, doesn't belong to you. <laughs> First Corinthians 6, do you not know that you have been bought with a price? Therefore, honor God with your body. That's Paul's argument. Your body's not yours. Jesus purchased you when he redeemed you. And so I don't have the right to do with this body whatever I may want, want to do with it. 
But the sexual revolution and the fall put this illegitimate authority into our hands where now you can invent your own theology in regards to the body. What are we recovering? Sex in the light. Sex in the light is sex according to God's good design and grand intention. It is only and always in the context of marriage between one man and his wife. In my brokenness, I reached a terrible conclusion that darkness was light. That my only hope of experiencing happiness was in a different type of relationship. And through redemption, little by little, more and more, slow, when a problem, if you've been walking with the Lord, you have the same problem with him. God does crock pot and I want microwave. He's doing low and slow. <laughs> Change is grueling. <laughs> but I learned something. It's because there are no graduates of grace. You will always need grace. And the people around you, no matter how good looking they may be, will need grace. You will want to kill your husband and your children sometimes. <laughs> And those you love the most, you will have to give grace. But you'll always be able to do that in proportion to the grace you've received. All right? Okay. So like I said, fast track. Okay. So at this moment, I believe there's two misconceptions that are hitting us culturally. The challenge for the church in the aftermath of the sexual revolution regarding LGBTQIA plus is two misconceptions. Here's a misconception. First, she is to be more loving than God. Two, she is to be less loving than God. What do I mean by that? Start with more, more about me. That when I say church, people are expecting the church to be more loving than God. Here's what I mean by that. When we encourage people to sin against God or violate what his word says, in the name of being loving, we would allow what God forbids. We would relax attention which God has prescribed as necessary for our discipleship. What does that look like? It looks like when we are affirming of LGBTQ practices. Some people are attempting to be more loving with God. There's a whole wave of Christian teachers running today saying, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. He didn't know anything about monogamous same-sex marriage. He had no clue. It's okay. Kyleo, you can have a husband. Someone literally did say that. So, right? I have Christian brothers who have left the faith. To pursue, we once you were fighting arm in arm, and they left the faith to find a more convenient Christianity that allows them to have what the world is offering. They found a pastor who thinks that he can be more loving than God, and what it means to be deceived to think we're more loving than God is that we would we can give mercy to allow something that God would forbid, but that's impossible. We only believe that because of a misconception. Here's times when we could be less loving than God. 
We are perceived as less loving than God when our religiosity gives us permission to not love and engage the broken of society. What is that? What do I mean by that? Westboro Baptist Church. You know who they are. You've seen them. Turner burn signs. People are going to hell and they are excited about it. <laughs> That's less loving. That's not the love that God expects for us to have towards sinners. And I'm going to go in a slightly different direction. And I didn't write this down because this one didn't hit me till this morning. But one of the other ways that I think the church that can be less loving than God, and this is a loving challenge to us, is when we fail to be the family of God that we could be towards each other. See, let me put it this way. If there are going to be certain people in our midst. Actually, we'll go to scripture. In Mark chapter 10, 29, chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says, I tell you that there's no one who's given up houses or land, left father or mother, brothers or sister, who will not in this lifetime have those things back tenfold. He said he's talking to people who are going to lose their family, lose their homes. And he says this to them. That in their lifetime, in this lifetime, you will have that back for the sake of the kingdom. What is he talking about? The family of God. That we are going to have to be the family of God to people who walk away from sin and from Satan. Your house is going to become their house. Your holy hospitality and your neighbor love is going to make up for what some of what we are losing in the world. Does that make sense? I think that's also a way that we can be less loving than God. Here's why. This is why the cross, the gospel of the cross must be preached because only the cross can do this, can handle this balance, can handle the minimization of our depravity while still bridging us to God. That's why I say that quote, right? Is that the cross, Jesus loved us best not by denying that we sinned. He died for our sins instead. You got to, we got to see the best and worst about us, which is this. You were so bad that Christ had to die, but he loved you so much that he was glad to do it. That's the reality. That's the tension of the cross, of this gospel of grace. And that, if, if that offends our sen religious sensibilities, good. That means it's working. <laughs> the cross is a scandal of grace. Only in the cross of Christ are we able to do these two things simultaneously. Believe our brokenness and embrace our belovedness. I had to believe what God said about my sin. And then at the same time, I had to believe his belovedness of me. God, yes, I was broken by sin, but you loved me so much that you gave your only begotten son. Only the cross gives us the ability to do these things. When we become more loving than God, sometimes we do this. Our responsibility is not to venerate, meaning worship, the image of God in our neighbor. That's not what we're supposed to do but we are supposed to wash their feet. That's the example that Jesus set before us. 
Alrighty. Last piece. We were going to take three minutes, but here's why I think this becomes such a challenge for us. Because, like I said, we're using the same words, but we're not speaking the same language. <laughs> right? And it's because of this word, love. Right? Well, Christians, you should be for love. Right? Yeah. But I think what happens is the confusion happens because in culture, love becomes this junk drawer that you kind of throw in whatever you want it to mean. Right? You get a little experience. My personal experience, this is of love. A little philosophy. What did Freud say? Right? A little religion sometimes. A little culture. Culture says love is love, right? But that's not what the scripture says. Scripture says God is love. Which means this. We submit to God's definition of what love is. And you have that. And to love your neighbors as God loves them, you will have to start here. By using the definition that God gives, love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Right? We see this clear description of what love is according to God. God goes on to say that God is love. Not love is God. God is love. And the reason why that's an important distinction to make is because we know what love is by knowing God, not the other way around. It's a careful distinction to be made there. Okay, for the sake of time, four minutes. <laughs> be done. Sorry to do this to you. Breeze through these. Y'all all right? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, how did my community do it? How did my community love me in grace and truth? Right? How did they do it? What does that scripture say? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How did they do it? few ways. My faith community validated my true needs for community, intimacy, the truth, and the new and true identity. My need for community. In the beginning, God makes Adam. He said, it is not good for a man to be alone. You were created for community. And let me tell you something crazy. A lot of people sinning are trying to fill an a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. That's what sin often is. It's trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. So some people's loneliness drives them into sin because they have a legitimate need for community. So we'll jump into abusive and crazy relationships because it beats being alone. Right? Intimacy. You were made to be known. What is intimacy? Intimacy is into me see. <laughs> you see into me, and here's the best part, and you stay. <laughs> you don't leave. <laughs> you were created to be loved that way. That's a legitimate need. 
My faith community helped validate that for me. They told me the truth. They didn't lie to me. (laughs) They told me the truth. And they declared my true identity. Kylie, I know men did you wrong, but it's still a good thing to be a man made in the image and likeness of God. And you don't have to be what they were. You can be one like God wants you to be. So you don't have to throw it away. <laughs> Let God redeem it and restore it. All right. They did not dispose or dispense of the truth to love me because the truth was the source for power to authentically loving me. That's what they had to do. They held on to the truth. Why? Because we know something about the truth that it's not a philosophy. It's a person. The truth is a person. So when we try to dispose of the truth and throw away the person of Christ, we're throwing away, we're almost trying to throw away the very source of power that we need to do this impossible thing. Okay, this is a big one to me. They rescued hospitality from Magnolia and Martha Stewart. Now I'm guilty of this. Okay. Meaning, (laughs) y'all laughing because you already know. (laughs) Meaning, we have got to be delivered from this idea that hospitality is a production. It is just naturally folding someone into the rhythms of your life. That's it. You don't have to have the $800 pillow or the poof. You don't need a French press. We can do Folgers, right? I know the laws, yeah. <laughs> right? I knew some kickback was coming. But sometimes those things inhibit us from showing biblical hospitality. Mm-mm. Don't do that. <laughs> You don't know what someone's night on your sofa could be saving them from. With your kids yelling and screaming and throwing potatoes at each other, it's okay. (laughs) It's life. It's meeting a need of community. It's providing intimacy. And you're showing the real. (laughs) And in a world of fake, we need the real. People are hungry for the real. Right? They were patient. Because Jesus knows how to let a marathon, how to ch- Jesus knows how to let change be a marathon and not a sprint. It's messy. <laughs> it is. You're going to get dirty. And here's this, to a certain degree, you may not be able to protect yourself from being hurt. Now, what I don't mean is open your doors and let any get, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying sometimes self-protection or an idea of self-protection becomes a shield that blocks us from loving our neighbor. It gets messy sometimes. They were willing to learn. I walked into my pastor's office one day, maybe about over 10 years ago, and I said, that's it. I'm about to lose it. <laughs> I'm about to walk out this door and I don't think I'm coming back. <laughs> I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of temptation. I'm tired of struggle. I'm done. You better do something. And he was like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> Poor man. I gave him a lot of gray hair. I worked on him. <laughs> no, but I gave him a time. 
He said, can you give me a couple of days? I said, okay, you better do something. <laughs> and he learned and he got a book and made a friend that he introduced me to and it changed my life. Justin actually just helped me. I had a, a friend reach out to me from Vegas who was same situation, gave up. He's out there in Vegas, he's so lonely. So he's getting into sinful practices and patterns and relationships. And I said, Justin, do you have a friend? He goes, yeah, I got a friend in Nevada. And his life, total change right now. Because he went to a, a big old church with a smoke machine and the preacher descended on the lines. And they sent him an email saying, our community groups are full. So when we have an opening, we'll get back to you. No, y'all. <laughs> that ain't it. <laughs> Not it. <laughs> right? But my pastor was willing to learn. They learned to listen. This was really helpful for me. They employed a healthy curiosity necessary to gently sift through the trauma of my story and point out God's presence and preservation in the midst of it. They helped me work through my own story. Said, no, Kyleo, God was here. You thought you were abandoned, but God was there. Here's where he was. God was right there. They became gospel fluent. We talk about this in our church network, gospel fluency. They learned how to speak the gospel to me when I couldn't tell it to myself. Like Jesus and the sinful woman forgiven, they didn't just look at me and see a sinner. They also saw someone trying to meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. And they were not ashamed enough of me to stay close to point it out as opportunities presented itself. They stayed close. They fought for me and sometimes in my place when I couldn't fight for myself. <laughs> I'm going to tell you this. Biblical hospitality is spiritual warfare. It really is. That's why Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not mighty, right? They're not a AK-47, you know, they're not your call of duty, whatever's, you know, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The weapons that we fight with, Paul says, have spiritual power. And that's why Jesus could say, even if you give a cup of cold water in my name, <laughs> great is your reward in heaven. That little act of hospitality has reward in heaven. They fought for me when I couldn't fight for myself. They made time and margin for practical but radically ordinary biblical hospitality. I always had somewhere to go on Christmas. I always had a plate somewhere in Thanksgiving. See, for some people, right, that may this walk through LGBTQIA plus for them may mean that they have a lifelong singleness. And that's going to be lonely. And the question is, who's going to be there for them? And as old St. Francis of Assisi said, Christ has no hands but yours and mine. He has no body but us. That's the reality. 
They naturally enfold me into the rhythms and the grooves of their lives, and I had to sit in the back of an SUV between a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and I got gum in my hair and a french fry in my ear, and it was wonderful. Because <laughs> I wasn't alone. <laughs> All right? Lastly, they prayed and prophesied over me. They prayed and they prophesied, meaning they spoke the word of God and the promises of God. Amen? Okay. So I'm sorry, that was a fast track. So there's no time for Q&A. <laughs> but um, what I can, what I will do is I actually have a slot, um, a document that I'll send of some questions um, and answers that I usually get places like these and talks like these and you guys can have that and also I'm completely available for any conversations or anything apart from that I'm your brother in the Lord so and I'm not famous so I'm touchable you know <laughs> yes and um, and I love to answer your questions um, if you had a specific question or anything about that I could help with amen Father God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you that you saved us. Thank you that you're still saving and you're still healing and changing and delivering people. Thank you for this community. Thank you for the faith that's here. Thank you for the warmth, the openness, the generosity. Thank you for this people that you've assembled. Um, my soul is glad to have been with them this morning. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would bless them throughout this week, that you will take the things that you want them to walk away with and the things that you want them to wrestle with and the things that you want them to be encouraged with, that you would sink them deep into their hearts. God, I pray you will clean up anything I might have messed up. I pray for them for their children, that this will become a radical ministry and people known for tenacious neighbor love. In Jesus' name, amen.